Okay, Colossians chapter 3, start of a new chapter. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Let's pray once more. Lord, we come before you and open your word, and we ask from your hand, God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to understand and to see you clearly this morning. Help us to see what this text means and change our lives by it and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, like I said, new chapter in Colossians. And actually, this marks the halfway point in Colossians. We've come halfway. It also marks division in Colossians, and I've shared this before, but I'll share it again, that with many of Paul's writings, he would write first a doctrinal portion of the letter in his letter, and then the latter part would be a practical section or portion in his letter. So that's usually how Paul's thoughts work. That's usually how his letters are written. First a doctrinal and then a practical. And when we mean doctrinal, when Paul writes doctrine to us, what we mean is he's writing to us the truths about who we are in Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, what Christ has done for us, these truths. That has nothing to do with our work, nothing to do with what we do. It has all to do with Christ and who he is and what he's done. And then the practical are the things that we do in the light of the doctrinal. So in the light of the truth of who Jesus is and who we are in him, then is birthed the practical. So it's almost like laying a foundation and then building a building on top of it. The foundation is all the doctrine, and on that doctrine, without ever moving away from that doctrine, but built on it, and drawing all its strength from that doctrine, then we build onto it, the practical. And in Colossians, Paul, of course, is dealing with the Judaizers. So the first part of the letter is doctrinal against the Judaizers. He's saying, here's the Judaizing teaching, Remember what they're telling them to do? They're telling them they need to keep the law. And we saw the direct attack against the Judaizers in chapter 2. Paul, in his doctrine, in his teaching, is showing the Colossians that Christ is enough. That they are complete in him. Now this next chapter, and also chapter 4, is what's called the hortatory part, or the part filled with exhortations. Okay. So now we come into the practical. And this is no less against the Judaizers. Did you know that not only doctrine combats false teaching, but also practice combats false teaching as well? And the sense is this. So you want to do something? The Judaizers want you to do something? Okay, here's what you should do. But it's totally different than what the Judaizers are saying. It has a totally different foundation and a totally different base. But when we're filled with good works as Christians who believe in the doctrines 
of the gospel, when we are filled with good works, then that serves to repel false teaching. It's like, well, we don't really need your teaching. We're just fine. And you say I need good works. Well, I have good works. Thank you very much. You know, we do love each other. And yet we're not saved by that. But it's funny because a lot of people think that when we talk about being saved by grace and not having to do any works, they think, well, wouldn't that lead us to apathy? Doesn't grace lead us to doing nothing? Many people think that way. Boys, if I became a Christian and I believe what you guys said, then I don't think I'd do anything. I'd just vegetate. That's all I'd do. At least my religion gives me some motivation to get up and get some works done, right? That's how a lot of people think. But they don't understand, first of all, grace when they say those things. They betray the fact they don't understand what grace really is. And they also betray the fact that they don't have a good motivation at all. What are they motivated by? If they say, well, if I didn't have to work and keep commandments to be saved, then I wouldn't work at all. So what's your motivation? To get saved. If all you do, if all your good works, if everything that you do is just because you want to get saved or get forgiven or go to heaven, that's not a pleasing motivation to God. And that's not what true morality is all about. Because the true motivation is what? Love. Love. And love is when you are not considering yourself, and not self-seeking, but when you're considering others. So why do I do what I do? If I do it in love, I do it because I'm considering God. I'm considering Jacob. Right? Not because I'm considering myself. So not just doing good works pleases God. Did you know that? And I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. A little analogy we use on campus. So... Imagine it is, um, let's say, my birthday. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. It's a great analogy to illustrate this point. So let's say it's my birthday on, uh, on Tuesday. Let's just say it's not, though. I could have said that what, you know, earlier this month. But let's say it's my birthday on Tuesday, and Nathaniel wants to get me a gift, okay? And he wants to show me how much he cares about me. And so he buys me a... Uh, snowblower and he puts a big red ribbon on it and he writes a card and he says happy birthday Eli just really want to show you how much I care about you here's a snowblower happy birthday Merry Christmas whatever free gift but I get it into my head for some strange odd reason because of things I've been thinking or things I've been hearing I think that Nathaniel is offering to me a bargain or a deal he's saying that if I snowblow his lawn for the, for the next uh, year, or his driveway, his driveway. See, I usually say lawnmower. If I snowblow his driveway for the next year, he'll give me the snowblower. That's what I think he's trying to say. And of course, Nathaniel says, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, Eli, I want you to have this as a free gift. And he's kind of frustrated that I would even think something like that because it betrays that I don't really know who he is. He wants to show me what a friend he is he wants to show me how much he loves me, and I just think he wants to make some money or get a, get a deal out of this. And so I start telling people about Nathaniel's bargain, and he says, stop telling people and spreading these lies. You're misrepresenting who I am. So how's Nathaniel going to feel if all winter he looks out the window and I'm snowblowing his driveway trying to earn the snowblower he wants to give me for free? Not very good. He's not going to be very happy with that. He's going to feel misrepresented. He's going to feel like what he wanted to, to speak to me wasn't spoken about his love. So you see that 
just doing good things for God doesn't please him if you're doing them to get that which he is offering to us for free. So there's nothing wrong with snow blowing the driveway. That's a nice thing to do. But if I'm doing it to get a gift that he wants to give me, Nathaniel's not going to be happy. And whether we go to church or whether we give money to charity or do any good deed that we do, if we do a good deed in order to get that which God is offering to us freely, then God isn't pleased with that. The Bible says that God wants to give us eternal life as a free gift. And so if you think that by doing good works, you're going to achieve eternal life, then you're not pleasing to God no matter how good those works are. Isn't that amazing? So, all the exhortations that the Bible has for Christians when it says for us to do good works isn't in order for us to get saved, and they aren't in order for us to receive from God the forgiveness of sins. Look at our text this morning in verse 1 and verse 3. The beginning of our practical section, it starts by saying, if you are risen with Christ. And then in verse 3, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. This isn't in order to become risen with Christ. This isn't in order to become dead with Christ and have your life hid with God. This is because you're a Christian, because you have these things, because you are dead with him and risen. Therefore, these are things that we're exhorted to do. He's already said they're forgiven. Look at chapter 2, verse 13 with me. It's, he says this of them, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses. So here he's not telling them to do anything to get forgiven. So let me just say this, that whether or not, and this might sound kind of shocking, but whether or not you follow the exhortations in the next two chapters, that does not affect your righteousness before God. It's kind of a shocking thing, isn't it? Whether or not you follow the exhortations in this practical section of the epistle does not affect your righteousness, your right standing, your reconciliation, God's favor towards you, God's love for you. It doesn't change it. Why? Because all those things aren't dependent upon your obedience to God or any good works that you do, but upon Christ and what he's done on the cross. Do you believe that? Sometimes we believe that, but then when it said that clearly or when it said, when we just infer then that if you don't do anything as a Christian, you're still totally in God's favor, we kind of get shocked, right? It's like we can doctrinally affirm it, but when it comes to the practical, we kind of shrink back. But this is true, that no matter what, if you believe on Christ and are trusting him, then your righteousness isn't changed whether or not you keep these at all. Isn't that amazing? But it will affect. There is an effect. It might not be your righteousness and your right standing with God, but it will affect your enjoyment of the relationship with God that you have and your enjoyment of the relationship you have with people as well. That will be severely affected by not following these exhortations. So don't think that, okay, well, if I don't, you know, if it's not going to affect my righteousness, fine, because it will affect your relationship, your enjoyment of that. So, what it is, in technical terms, as it's been called, is the difference between sanctification and justification. And sanctification, which is what we're going to look at now, has to do with you enjoying your relationship with God, experiencing and enjoying all the blessings you have in Christ Jesus, walking out who you are in Jesus Christ. 
but it doesn't affect your justification, which is your perfect standing with God, your permanent position before God in Christ Jesus. And those must not be confused at all. Now let's look at this together. Verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ. So this is only for Christians. So I want to just make a few comments now about those who are not Christians. If you are risen with Christ, if you are not risen with Christ, then these exhortations will not help you at all. Let's say you're not risen with Christ, you're not a Christian, and you start reading Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4, and you start trying to do all these things that it tells you to do. It will not help you at all in one bit. It does not make you closer with God. It does not make you better with God. It does not make you right with God. It won't help you at all. Because this is only for those who are dead and risen with Christ. This is only for a Christian. A Christian is someone who has put their entire confidence in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Their hope is in Christ alone for their salvation. What they are trusting in is in Jesus and what he has done for them on the cross and not themselves and what they do. Not even their own faith do they trust in. They don't say, well, at least I've got faith, so I'm okay. They're, they're not even thinking about that. They're just thinking about Jesus and what he's done on the cross for them. That's enough for me. That is faith. Faith is when you just look to him, that he's able to save you and not yourself. And why do we need to die? Why does it say dead and risen with Christ? Why does it describe the Christian as dead and risen with Christ? Isn't that kind of a morbid thing to say you're dead? Why is that the description of a Christian? Because, brothers and sisters, as we saw last week, remember the debt that we all incurred? Because we're sinners. And a sinner is someone who's broken God's law. A sinner is somebody who's broken God's commands. And the wages of sin is death. What is sin? Sin is when you do something, when your conscience is bothered, and you feel shame and guilt. How many of you have ever felt that, that way? You ever, you ever done something in your life where you felt shameful about it, and you wanted to hide it from other people and from God? <laughs> Kim, yeah. That's what sin is. And God put in us a built-in sin detector system called our conscience. And we know when we do something that's wrong and we feel guilty. But what happens is usually, how do we deal with that guilt? How do we usually deal with that guilt? How do people deal with it? That's the question. And I'll tell you, most people, they just stuff it. And they'll feel better in a week. Right? Oh, I feel so guilty right now, but I'll just feel better in a week. And in a week's time, I won't feel guilty anymore. So they let time just play its course. They let time, they think that time, if I just separate myself from that sin in time, then my guilt will go away. Now that is not how guilt is removed. If that was how guilt was removed, then Jesus didn't need to come and die for us. And nowhere in the Bible does it say, you just put a little bit of time between you and your guilt, and your guilt will go away. Now your perception of the guilt may go away. You might not feel so guilty anymore. You might not feel guilty at all. But God, in his sight, that sin hasn't been removed. And you're just as guilty and worthy of death in his sight from when you first sinned. God is a perfect memory. The only reason 
we forget and we feel not guilty anymore is because our memory is weak. We live moment by moment by moment and other things come into our life and, and fill our minds and we just forget about it. Let's just put the past behind us, we say. God, on the other hand, he feels just as abhorred with your sin two years later, 50 years later than when you first committed it. That guilt has never been removed in his sight. And the only way that guilt can be removed is by the penalty that guilt incurs, which is death. Did you know there is no way to get around it? All sin, it says in the book of Hebrews, all sin receives its punishment. Can you imagine what perfect justice is that? That every single sin receives its just desert. Now, we don't see justice like that in our country, do we? Can you imagine if every single sin received its justice? Every time somebody broke the speed limit when they were driving. Every time you went through a red light. Brad. <laughs> every time somebody was kidnapped. Every time somebody stole. Every time somebody murdered. Nobody ever got away with it. I mean, that concept of justice is so foreign to us because we just don't experience that or see that. That is not how God's justice works. And never let yourself think it is. Don't let the way you see justice in the earth happen affect the way you think it happens with God. But with God, every, just, every sin receives its just desert. And that's the only way guilt can be removed. The good news is that God loves the world. Isn't that good news? That God loves sinners who break his law. Now God has to do something because he knows in his own justice and righteousness that every sin that is committed deserves punishment and yet he loves the world. And he's not going to sacrifice his justice. And so what God did because he loves us is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty that they deserve so that we could go free. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross and he paid the penalty that we deserve. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, that's our sin. The, the handwriting is our debt blotting out our debt that was against us and contrary to us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He paid the penalty that we deserve so that we could go free. Isn't that wonderful? Now, if you are not a Christian, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, then the place where you'll end up is hell, the Bible says. And people say, well, why is hell where sinners go? Isn't that kind of harsh? Isn't that kind of severe? I mean, okay, everything gets its just desserts, but why is sin's just desserts hell? You ever thought about that? It's because of the one whom we've offended by our sins. When we sin... We don't just sin against a machine. We don't just sin against this law on paper, but we sin against a God, a person. 
the person, the original person, whom all of you are based on. We're all based on the original person, which is God. And we sin against that person when we sin and break his law. So the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So this is the gospel. Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and because he did that, he offers to us the free gift of God. So if you are risen with Christ, then we can proceed. If you are not risen with Christ, then you can't proceed here. And what you need to do if you're not a Christian is believe on Christ immediately because you might not have tomorrow. And what we need to do as Christians is go and tell people about the gospel so that they can believe on it and be saved. Because this is the only thing that can save your soul. There's no salvation outside entire trust in Jesus Christ. So let's look now at this text and how it relates to the Christian. The new life in Christ that you have. Now that we are risen with Christ. This is what a new Christian, a newborn Christian can read right away because it's saying, okay, now that you're risen with Christ, maybe you've only been born a second. Maybe you just became a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for 50 years. Okay, it's all the same. If you have been risen with Christ, what does it say? If you are risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. You realize that's the entire Christian life in a nutshell right there? You were risen with Christ. That's how your Christian life began. It's going to end when Christ shall come again. That's the resolution. That's the consummation of it all. Then you will appear with him in glory. And it tells you everything you need to know about the middle as well. Set your mind on things above. In the meantime, since you started and here's the end, in the meantime, set your mind on things above. So it's, Paul simplified the whole thing. He shows the beginning and the middle and the end. And he shows it to us in this way as a foundation and as a guide for everything that we study. Because there's obviously many details about these things. But as we study the details about how we were saved, what will happen when Christ comes, what we do in the meantime, if we depart from the simplicity of this, then we know we've got into error. So if someone comes along and says, I'm going to give you a teaching on the Christian life, and he departs from the simplicity of simply setting your mind on things above, then he's gone into error. Or if he says, I'm going to teach you about the second coming, and then he departs from the simplicity of when Christ comes, then you'll also appear with him in glory. If he starts saying, well, no, when Jesus comes, then you know, only some people will appear with him in glory. When Jesus comes, then you, know, you have to be good enough in order to make it and all that. Then we know we've departed from the simplicity of the gospel. So it's all here in a nutshell for us. And this is how our practical Christian life begins, by understanding where we came from, where we're going, and what we do in the meantime. It's that simple. He tells us to seek those things which are above, to pursue those things which are above. 
Now contrast that with what the Judaizers are telling you to seek and to pursue. They're telling you to seek righteousness by your works. They're telling you to seek righteousness, how to be right with God in a worldly and earthly way. And Paul says, in contrast to what they're telling you to do and to seek, here is what you should do as a Christian. Pursue those things which are above. You are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Pursue those things which are above. So there's two different pursuits being set before you. And which one will you pursue? Here's a quote from John Calvin that I thought was really good. When we see what God would have us do, we afterwards easily despise the inventions of man. When we perceive that what God recommends to us is much more lofty and excellent than that what men recommend, our cheerfulness of mind increases for following God so as to disregard men. Did you catch that? So what he says here is that when we see what God is telling us to pursue, it's very easy to pursue that and not to pursue what man tells us to pursue because we see them in contrast. What God is telling us to pursue is so much more wonderful than what the Judaizers are telling us to pursue. And it's an easy decision once you see what's really being said by both sides. So how much better indeed is it to pursue the things above than the things of the earth? So he's already said what the things of the earth are. Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 20. He said the rudiments of the world, these earthly things and the way the world thinks. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, seek the things that are above. Now here's my question, or here's what I want to ask you. Do you want to be in bondage, or do you want to be free? Do you want your life to be in bondage or free? You want to walk in freedom? Pursue the things above. You want to walk in bondage? Pursue the things below. And here you have it set before you. And when you see the freedom that God's calling you to, and you see the bondage that Judaizers are calling you to, or that men's ideas are calling we just say Judaizers because of the context here, but our own day it could be all sorts of things. I'll just say that whatever man tells you to do, whatever religious man tells you to do that isn't based upon the gospel is death and leads you to bondage. But God's way leads you to life, peace, and freedom. So we need to pursue the things above, which is the truths as it is, and not man's earthly ideas. Things above. What are the things above specifically? As we looked at last series that we did in Ephesians, we looked at the things above. Ephesians was all about the heavenlies, wasn't it? I was just looking back over Ephesians again. I'd encourage you to do that as well. It's just amazing. Ephesians, it's like you're walking around in heaven just looking at things. It's just absolutely amazing. Right from the beginning, Paul shoots us up into heaven and keeps us there all the way to the end. And what we see up there is just an amazing thing. We see the riches of God's grace. Just so you remember, the riches of his grace that he has for us in Christ Jesus. This word riches keeps coming up all the time. So what we see in heaven isn't that God just stingily gave us salvation. He abundantly lavished us with salvation and his grace. We see the exalted Christ, that Christ our Lord in our head and our identity is above all things and above all principalities and powers. We see our position in Christ, who we are in Christ, perfectly righteous, child of God, seated with him, seated with him in 
at the right hand of God. We see the lost from heaven's perspective. We see the church from heaven's perspective. And we see the love of Christ in its heights and depths and breadths. We also see spiritual warfare and what it's all about. From heaven, we see that the spiritual warfare is all about taking your mind off of God's grace. So it's all there to see. Paul says, set your mind on things above. Pursue the things that are above. That means it's there for you to see if you want to see it. It's not like God is standing there with a big brick wall and saying, I'm not going to let you look in here. He's saying, look in. It's there for you to see. All it takes is for us to turn aside and see. But it's all there. And the emphasis is, in Colossians 3 here, when he says, seek those things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. In verse 3, then he says, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So there's an there's a emphasis here on seeing yourself as well from heaven's perspective and who you are in Jesus. God wants us to see who we are and why we are who we are. I think if we saw who we are and why we are, we'd be walking on water. We'd be water skiing through life. Or barefoot. Because we see who we are. Wow, I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven of all my sins. I'm perfectly righteous before God. I was foreknown by God, predestined. I have a future. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. No one can pluck me out of the Father's hand. All things are working together for good. If we saw who we are in Christ, things would be a lot different. And then we think about, wow, I'm in this amazing position before God. How did I get here? And the answer is, of course, God loved you and gave himself for you so that you could be taken from the dunghill and set up with the princes. So this call to seek the things above is just this. It's the pursuit of the knowledge of who you are and why you are. It's the pursuit of seeing things from heaven's perspective. Knowing who you are and living out of that reality. Isn't that amazing? So that's what you should do, he's saying to the Colossians, and that's what I'm saying to you. We need to do this. We need to pursue the things that are above in contrast to the things that the world tells us to pursue, whether they be religious or not religious. The world tells you to pursue one thing, and Christ and God and the apostle is telling you to pursue the things above. And that's an active thing that we have to do. That's not automatic. That's not going to automatically happen to Pat. That's not going to automatically happen to Deanna or me or anyone. That's something we need to choose. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to seek. I'm going to chase after the things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and I am sitting there with him. That's where I'm going to pursue. That is what I'm going to chase after. And we need to be diligent about it. That means actually stopping every now and again, maybe more times than we think we need to, and just praying and considering and thinking about these wonderful things, setting our mind on things above. I know for myself that it's so easy for me to take my thoughts off of these things. It's so easy for me. And I constantly need to stop and remember, simply re mind myself that's all of who I am in Christ and of why I am in Christ 
remind. Let's put my mind back in the place it should be. And there we'll see that everything we need is found. You need motivation for good works? It's found right there. You see, the, you see why you are what you are? First of all, you see what you are. Okay, okay, I see what I am. I don't need to do any good works whatsoever because I'm perfectly complete in Christ. Why am I? Because of his love for me. Okay, now I want to do good works for Christ. So all the motivation you need to do good works is by pursuing the things above. And all the security you need is by pursuing the things above. You see the things that you are. You, you see in heaven and you see what you are and why you are. And then you don't want to go, like Calvin said. And you don't want to chase after what the world is telling you to chase after. Because you have such a wonderful abundance of grace and of love and of peace and of joy in Christ, in God. So all the motivation and the security we need is, is simply in pursuing the things above. It's interesting that the Bible tells us that Christians are zealous for good works and at the same time tells us that salvation is not of works. So that tells us that there is a different motivation, that Christians are living a different way than the world is. They're zealous for good works, and they don't have to do any good works. They don't have to do any good works, but they're zealous for good works. What is their secret? Here it is. The things above. And in verse 2, he tells us everything here. Set your mind, better translation than affection, King James says affection, but the word is mind. Set your mind on things above. That's the key to the whole Christian life. Set your mind on things above. That's one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible. Some people say, I don't know what to do today. Set your mind on things above. I don't know what the will of God is. Set your mind on things above. I don't know how to get out of this pit. Set your mind on things above. I wish I was more this. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. That's it. And not on things on the earth. By doing that, there's a negative as well. When you put your mind on things above, you take your mind off the things of the earth. When you put your mind on the things of the earth, you take your mind off the things above. Those two things are incompatible. Those pursuits are incompatible. You chase the things above, you can't chase the things of what the world is telling you to chase. And if you chase the things the world is telling you to chase, you can't chase the things God is telling you to chase. And isn't it beautiful? God isn't telling you to chase salvation. He's telling you to chase knowing and enjoying that you are saved. So what is it going to be? Set your mind on things above. This, this word mind is all over the Bible. I think lately I've seen more than I've ever seen that the mind is the key to the whole thing. And you see it all over Scripture. Let's just jump to a few verses here. Matthew chapter 16, verse verse 23. Matthew 16, 23. It's the exact same Greek word. Phroneo. These These will be familiar passages for everybody, I'm sure. But it's the mind that's in view. Matthew 16, 23. Jesus now says to Peter, when Peter just says, not so, my Lord, you won't go to the cross. He says this, get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense unto me, 
for you, now in the King James it says, you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of God. The word is phrenea, it's mind. You do not mind the things that be of God, but you mind the things that be of men. Set your mind on things above. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Very important verse in Romans. In the context of our walk with the Lord as Christians. <coughs> Romans verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. It says here, same Greek word, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Galatians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul now says to these Christians in Galatians who have been dabbling with the legalism of the Judaizers, he now says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he be. So there he again says, these Judaizers are taking your mind off the gospel, but I'm confident that you will hear what I'm saying and your mind will come back to the truth of the gospel. You'll be none otherwise minded. Next one and the last one we'll look at. There's just so many. You could look at so many. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. Philippians 3, verse 15. says this. This is Paul saying what a mature Christian looks like. He says, Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if anything, if, any, if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. It's all in the mind. And by setting your mind on things above, that is the basis, that is the source, the spring, the beginning. Everything that pertains to your Christian life is connected to your mind. Walking in the Spirit means minding the things of, that are above. Spiritual warfare, all, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, is in your mind. Satan comes along and he wants to take your mind off of the things above, off of the truth and onto his lies. It's all there. And if you lose in the mind, you lose everywhere. So let's not just think that spiritual warfare is just, oh, Satan wants me to sin. Satan wants you to do worse than sin. Satan wants you to take your mind off the things above. So then, yeah, you'll totally sin after you do that. So it starts in the mind. And your entire Christian life stands or falls with your mind. Your day, make it real practical here, whether you have a good day or a bad day, 24 hours depends upon your mind, whether you fix it on things above. You want to have a good day? And just set your mind above who you are in Christ and why you are in Christ. And you'll have a different day. And so all that we do as Christians 
God doesn't call us to mindless action. This is another thing this teaches us. Christians are not to be lemmings. You know what a lemming is? They just follow the leader right off the cliff. They just don't use their brain. They don't stop and think, where am I going? <laughs> you know, they just run. Christians are not to be lemmings. We are not to be mindless. We don't do things that we do because somebody's just telling us to do it and we don't have a brain. We do things that we do on the contrary because we're minding the things above and what we do has a base in truth. I do what I do because I'm thinking about the truth. I'm thinking about love. I'm thinking about you. I think so often our Christianity can be mindless. You ever stop to just think why you do what you do? Because I think we get into these ruts sometimes. Just a routine. I go to church because that's what I do. I don't really think about why I go. What, my going to church doesn't really have anything to do with my mind. Or whatever else it may be. Doing the dishes, right? I'm going to bring up doing the dishes because we all have done them. Why do you do the dishes? Is it mindless? Is it just somebody else has told you to do it and you just go do it kind of like a robot? Or do you do it with a mind on things above, thinking about love, the love that God has for you and for the person who asks you to do them? Thinking about consideration of others. So this is a challenge for us in what we do as Christians to examine it and to see if we are doing things mindlessly or if we're doing things based upon our minds. So God is calling us to live this way with our minds up in heaven and not on the earth. That means we are living differently than the world is living. We are looking different than the world is looking. We're functioning with a different base than with the base that the world is based upon. And if you've ever wondered why Christian life can be so difficult sometimes, it's because we're not living consistent with who we, what we know and who we are in Christ. It's like trying to shove a square into a peg, into a round peg, a, uh, a square peg into a round hole, isn't it? I know that's how it feels for me. When I'm not setting my mind on things above and I'm trying to just live my life and do things, my life just doesn't work, just doesn't fit because I'm not living consistent with who I am. That's what it says in verse 3. He tells us to do this. Pursue the things above and set your mind on things above. And verse 3 starts with the word for, because you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. This is your identity. That's what he's saying. Your identity is no longer yourself in Adam. Your old identity is a sinner. You're dead. You're totally dead. And now your new identity is in Christ. And because that is your identity, therefore set your mind on that identity and live out of it. Otherwise, your life's going to be this miserable, uh, impossible match of trying to match a square peg in a round hole. So because this is your identity, live it. Think about it. Do what you do based upon that. Otherwise, it's not going to fit. So this is who you are. And this, verse 3, isn't an aspiration. Paul's not telling us to die. He's not telling us to, to die. He's telling us just to remember that we are dead. And our life is hid. Here's why we have to remember. Because our life is invisible. It's hid. It's secret. 
And that's why we get confused sometimes, because we don't see it with our physical eyes. Just as Christ is hid in God, so also are we hid in God. And Christ, as is said here, I'm going to read a wonderful quote by H.M. Carson here on this verse. He says, The world does not see this new life which the believer has experienced. And as a result, misunderstanding, enmity, and scorn are the believer's lot. Just as Christ is hidden from all eyes but the eyes of faith, so this life is hidden in the secret counsels of God. So the reason why we struggle, and this is now saying the, the believers get flack from the world because of what we say, right? We tell the world that we're perfectly righteous and accepted and holy and we don't have to do anything, and we get totally misunderstood and scorned, right? Because the world says, no, that's not true. You don't look anything like that. But also Christians, also we get misunderstood. We misunderstand ourselves and one another because this is something that's hid and this is something that's seen by faith because it's something that's above. You understand? The things above are not seen but by faith. And so setting your mind on things above is an act of faith because this is hid and we can get fooled by it because we just want to see, see, see instead of believe and be changed. But one day, brothers and sisters, it says here in verse 4, when Christ who is our life shall appear. That means when he no longer is hid, you believe that one day Jesus is going to come back? Every eye shall see him. And if every eye shall see him, every eye shall also see those who are his as well. Christ, when he appears, then shall you also appear with him in glory. That means this wonderful, amazing life that you have in the heavenlies in Christ, which right now we're talking about, we're seeing it revealed to us in the scriptures, and we're apprehending it by faith, and we're learning to set our mind on things above and walk out of that reality, will one day be a tangible reality. We won't be walking by faith anymore. And it will, I think it will seem, will seem kind of stupid, I think, on that day if we didn't live the way we really are. Because when suddenly we are transformed, we'll say, oh, what a dummy I was. Because <laughs> this isn't just what I am now. This is what I've always been since I believed. What a dummy I've been. How did I not, how did I not walk in this? Why did I not see this? My life could have been so different had I just set my mind on things above. The truth of who I am that will one day be revealed. Not that it will be real one day. It's always been there. It'll just appear. This is why Paul was so amazing, because he saw it now for himself and not later. Galatians 2.20. Life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It said, I am crucified with Christ. Not I that lives now, but Christ lives in me. He saw it. He saw the reality of it now. He saw what would be seen later. He saw it now by faith. And if we think, my, what a glorious future the Christian has, and he does, we should also think, my, what a glorious life the Christian has to live right now. So here's the challenge to pursue. Okay, the Judaizers are telling you to pursue the law and obedience and good works to be right with they're telling you to pursue that. They're telling you to snowblow the driveway to get the snowblower. 
Sounds like a good thing, right? Sounds like it's got some wisdom there. But where it leads to is bondage. You want to pursue that? You will pursue bondage and your own destruction. But if we see, okay, see the true end of that and see what God is telling us to pursue as Christians, pursue the things above. Pursue setting your mind on things above. Pursue living the reality of what you will be in the future, what you are right now. Pursue this, and it will be life, and it will be peace. You'll have everything that you need for life and godliness in this. And you don't need to look anywhere else but to Christ. So this is how we are to live our lives as Christians. This is what it's all about. It starts with Christ. It's lived by him, looking to him. And it ends with him coming back as well, where it's going. So as we continue on in Colossians, all these exhortations, remember, are built upon this foundation. You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. This is not to get saved. This is not to get that. This is the foundation for everything we're about to read. So if you're not a Christian, you need to become one immediately because you don't know if you will have tomorrow. But if you are a Christian, then let's pursue the knowledge of who we are and why we are and live out of that reality right now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage in Colossians that gives us the whole Christian life in a nutshell. And thank you for the amazing truth that it tells us of, God, that who we are in Christ. And I pray for all of us here that we would set our mind on things above daily, on a day-to-day basis, and not allow ourselves to be removed from that in our minds. Help us to detect, God, when our mind is drifting. Thank you for dying on the cross for all of our sins and saving us from the wrath that we would have had to be punished with. Thank you for loving us so much with a perfect love. And please transform us by your love to love one another and to love you in response. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.